0: Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. If you're anything like me, since the coronavirus pandemic, you will have switched from paying for things predominantly by cash to paying almost exclusively by card or digital wallet. My guest on this episode of the podcast is someone who argues that, contrary to the mainstream narrative, the boom in digital payments hasn't benefited either businesses or consumers. Bob Lydon says that UK payments have become the domain of a technocratic elite working in tandem with big tech and the major payment card brands. According to Lyddon, digital payments have enabled a new kind of fraud, taken an increasing cut of businesses' revenue and made the use of cash increasingly difficult. If the UK goes down the road of introducing a central bank digital currency, or CBDC, consumers could suffer even further, says Lydon while the central bank and tech insiders will become even more powerful. Listen in for the next 30 minutes to hear more. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so via Patreon. The link to our Patreon account is in the right column of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com. Bob, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you introduce yourself to listeners and tell them about your work and your background?
1: Yes. Um, I mean, I'm an independent management consultant, I started off in international banking, then was with Pricewaterhouse at the time of the introduction of the euro. And I've been an independent for 20 years. And I concentrate on international payments and its latest developments, fintech, digital payments, um, and increasingly into things like central bank digital currency.
0: Let me start with a quote from the Swedish central bank from a couple of years ago. They said that digital payments are more efficient than cash. Uh, Other people have said on the same topic that digital payments are faster, greener, cheaper and safer. They're also more reliable and more and easier to use than payments with cash or checks. Now, you're uh, not a lone voice, but you're one of the people taking the opposite uh, point of view. Why is that?
1: Well, efficient, uh, you know, it depends how you define efficiency. If a merchant or retailer accepts cash, they get the full amount. If they accept digital payments, which effectively means a card payment, they get a substantial amount sliced off. And although there's a regulation in Europe that's supposed to limit that to a fraction of 1%, somehow it's been circumvented and retailers... Uh, giving up between three and seven percent, and that's factored into higher prices for everybody. So digital payments are more efficient.
0: How could we? Uh, so could we? Could I just stop you there, Bob, for a second? So there, you're talking about the interchange fee regulation yes, in that's Europe, right. which is supposed to to cap intermediary fees, or at least the the fee paid to the acquiring bank. To is it zero point three percent of the transaction for value? Credit card
1: and zero point two percent for debit.
0: Right. The thing now, you're saying that, that, they're, that, they're, that those digital payments are swallowing much, much more than that. They could be taking as much as 7% of the amount received by the merchant.
1: Yes, that's right, especially for smaller merchants, because although the, inter- the regulation says the 0.2% can be the only amount sliced off the payment at the level of the acquirer and paid on to other parties in the payment chain, it doesn't cover what the merchant pays their acquirer for the acquirer service, but it's what's available to the rest of the actors in the payment chain. And certainly in the UK, it's been totally circumvented. There are multiple lines of fees, not transparent. And I mean, I've uh, compiled sets of accounts for merchants, uh, small merchants, small businesses, um, who don't need to be audited. And yeah, you're talking... Five, six, seven percent of the entire sales go and swallowed up in a qu- interchange fees.
0: Right. So that, that so that it's it's not as efficient or not as cost effective as the proponents of digital payments would like us to believe. No,
1: certainly. And the other degree of efficiency is the efficiency with which fraudsters have been able to ma- get hold of people's money through authorised push payment fraud. And as for the idea of things being green, I mean, that really is a canard that uh, physical cash and checks are not green. This is, and as well, that physical cash and checks were uh, spreaders of coronavirus.
0: You know, here we're
1: into wild conspiracy theories and piling on any excuse to promote digital payments.
0: Yeah. I mean, but the, the, the fact is that a lot of us have switched to paying digitally for pretty much everything over the last couple of years, whether yes. that was coronavirus related or not. But you're arguing that that's pushing us in an, in an unhealthy direction.
1: Well, we are being pushed. So, for example, with, with checks, the uh, withdrawal of various facilities for paying in checks in bulk. Yes, you can go into a branch, pay in one or two. But if you have 100 checks, how long does that take you? The facilities for merchants to pay in bulk checks have been eroded. The check guarantee card was taken off the, the table. You know, the you used to automatically get a new checkbook. The bank used to detect when you almost finished your checkbook and reissue a checkbook automatically. That's been taken away. So one way or another, by a, a thousand cuts, both cash and checks have been undermined as viable payment means. And yes, then we all go digital, but the costs and risks of that, so it isn't just the cost, it's the risk as well. And that's authorised push payment fraud.
0: Right. Let's talk about that subject in a bit more detail. Yeah. So I, before the call, uh, I looked up some data on authorised push payment fraud in the UK. Perhaps we should start by defining what what, what is authorised push payment fraud. But I, I, the, the figure I got was over a billion pounds a year in in, in yes. fraud of this type. Yeah,
1: Gross. Yeah. So belatedly, the, the regulator, the payment systems regulator, in the last month or two has admitted This is a problem primarily around the faster payment system, not BACs, not CHAPs, which most people haven't got access to, but it's faster payments, which sits behind mobile internet banking. It's the nodal system now. And the problem is that it's basically a system that was cobbled together out of different parts of the BACs system, and particularly the debit card system.
0: Right, before we get so, into that, Bob, so authorised push payment fraud is where, I, let's, see, let's say, I authorise the fraudster to take money from my account. And that may well, be as a result of of uh, a phishing email or some yeah. or a phone call that's come to me from someone pretending to be my bank or, yes, or something like right. that. I recently it, it, had a re- PayPal payment request, which I didn't recognise, but it was very convincing yeah. looking. And I went on the PayPal account and it was still in my account, despite the fact that I'd... Uh, Told them it was a phishing attempt. Uh, you know these things are quite sophisticated.
1: Yes, the way in which it comes about there are many and various, but the common thread is that you go on to an electronic banking app or a system of your bank, and you tell them to make a payment to. Usually, it's yourself. You put your own name in, and then there's a sort code and account number or somebody you know, or a, a company you trade with, or whatever, a known supplier. But the banks, by law, are, are able to transact just on the basis of the sort code and account number. They don't check the name when the amount arrives at the payee's bank. So this, the name on the account that you've identified will be totally different. And this is the, the floor, the central floor, Because as it's designed on the basis of a card payment, which is a pull payment, so a card payment does not require the payee name to be processed at the bank at the other end of the payment chain because it's the payee that's starting it. They have their terminal, they put the card details in, and all that happens then to, to the payee name is it's transported to the bank at the other end of the chain and put on the payer's statement? It isn't processed, but on a push payment, you absolutely need to check the payee name. But by law, the payee name currently does not form part of what's known as the payment contract between the payer and their bank. And that's right. so. If we form- contrast this
0: with the, with, the, the, with the way we many of us used to pay by check. Yes. You've written the name of the payee into the checks field for payee. You've yeah. said, I want to pay it to this entity or this person. Yes. And, and then it can't presumably go astray.
1: Well, it, it can, but it's the bank's risk. Right. So I don't believe that banks checked the payee name on every single, single cheque. But if they pay a, a, a cheque into an account named differently to what's on the payee line, it's their risk and they have to reimburse the payer. But with faster payments, the legal situation is different, and they also don't check. There is no name check. So that's why you have this thing called confirmation of payee, to introduce a name check process, but outside the normal payment flow. But really, if faster payments was meant to replace checks, and it was, then the either you have the name check that the banks do on every payment or they cannot check the name but it's their risk but the problem is they don't check the name and it's the customer's risk
0: so, so you're basically saying that the consumer protections of the kind of payment system that we've now ended up with are inferior to greatly uh, to, inferior yeah. yeah
1: so yes faster payments is more efficient You know, if the banks don't check the name, that's one process they don't have to go through. So that makes it more efficient for them. It's lower cost for them and instant. It's instant. That makes it easier for the fraudster to get the money out. It's all fine for the banks. Lower costs, less risk for the banks. But then that all falls back on the consumer, the customer, business or private individual.
0: So you're saying that the digital payments infrastructure is largely being cobbled together on, on the, the existing card payments infrastructure. Yes, and that's, it is. That's, that's, that's created a number of problems.
1: The proof, the definitive proof of that is the message data standard used by Faster Payments and its International Standards Organization 8583. That is the card standard. So it uses the card's standard messages but that cards are a pull payment, so it's right. a push payment product cobbled together on a pull payment chassis.
0: Right. It's so the ringer, designers of digital currency didn't need to go down this route, but they've they've actually gone they've gone down this route because it was it was there.
1: Well, it was done between the banks and VocaLink, the infrastructure that the company that supports it in the around two thousand and six two thousand and eight. Because they were under pressure to do something quickly, and they didn't want to spend too much money, so there you go, cobble it together from existing bits.
0: Yeah. Now, on your on your blog, uh, which I've spent uh, you know some f- very interested uh, hours reading, um, I I notice you you've drawn much broader conclusions that the the whole open banking initiative, in your view, has been a failure, and that the the, the payment regulation payment services regulator doesn't function properly. Why mm. you know, why do, why do you take why do you take such a, I mean, it's a kind of a heretical view these days that this is, this is, because as we can see from the top down of the UK, the prime minister and several government yeah. ministers and p- people in the, re- at the regulator, the central bank, they're all pushing this. They say, we want the UK to be the center of digital currency, digital payments. You know, wh- yeah. what, what in your view they is, want yeah, what's going on here? want,
1: what do we want? You yeah. know, and uh, Sunak Rishi Sunak said his policy as chance of the exchequer was for us to be the head of cryptocurrency well that was before the whole thing blew up over the summer and the autumn but the you know does do we have a change of direction no who says we want that they want that um so if you look at open banking what was it meant to achieve much higher account switching the contention was that the electronic banking product offered to customers by banks acted as a lock-in so that it ossified switching. If you start using Lloyds Bank's app, you're not going to change your current account. So the solution to that, very similar to things tried in other countries, like in Belgium, um, you have a kind of intermediary open banking entity through which you can access any banks all right fine is that for convenience because you have those accounts but one thing it definitely hasn't done is uh, increased account switching so it's failed in its primary objective and of course then when you have a group of people who um, have invested in it who are bought into the thing and it isn't working What do they do? Well, they don't say shut down. They say we've got to add to it. It'll work if we add this, savings accounts, variable recurring payments, this, that, the other. Um, And then where's the end of it? Basically, the whole thing has started gathering a momentum entirely of its own, hundreds of providers. Where are the customers? And also, do the Offerings that have been put up, like budgeting apps, do they really work? There's lots of endorsements from them on the internet, from people in the open banking ecosystem. But where are the customers that say, this has really worked for me? This is fantastic. You've got to use this. Well, that is absent as well. It's all contention. And, you know, we had this big scandal at the open banking implementation entity which required a 300-page report from Mishkondorea, which hasn't come into the public domain. And now we have new governance. But there were obviously severe problems there. But nevertheless, the, the train keeps rolling and rolling further on, as I say, to add savings accounts to a mechanism which has proved itself to be open to push payment fraud. And that's a serious issue. If you, you should pause and say to what extent is open banking contributing to push payment fraud because a faster payment is the only current payment option available. And pause and get people in who are not already bought into open banking to say why has this A, failed in its main uh, objective and B, appears by all accounts to be contributing to push payment fraud. The last thing you do is allow further increases in scope.
0: Right, so you're worried about a lack of transparency when it comes to the whole push towards digital yeah, payments. We, we
1: know that the payment systems regulator, you know, they jumped on the horse of access to cash. Well, great, but on the other hand, what, one of the outcomes that, of the, their access to cash work was to create yet another committee called the Digital Payments Initiative, drawn from people from the digital payments world, to propose where their offerings could substitute for cash where cash is needed. That's not protecting cash. That's orchestrating its replacement, its, def- its demise. That's disingenuous. You know, and they, they are not sufficiently challenged. And then the thing the digital payments industry, didn't even deliver. It said, oh, we need to address all these things through, of course, open banking. You know, open banking, the kind of placebo for all ills. In a way, it's ridiculous, but it has meaningful detriments for consumers and businesses.
0: Right. Last year, you wrote a paper called uh, Capture, Big Tech and Digital Payment Giants Dominate the Committees Evaluating the Replacements of physical cash with Britcoin, which is the UK's central planned central bank digital currency. And you've, you've gone yeah. through person by person the members of the uh, committees that have been set up to kind of supervise yeah. this process. And you po- you're pointing out that, they, that you think that a lot of these people are conflicted because they either work in the digital payments industry or they may be investors in some of the projects and, that, and these things are not disclosed. You know, how, how big a problem do you think this is? Well,
1: it's a total problem. You know, that supposedly um, it was an open process to appoint these committees and yet Then you get a committee composed especially the technology committee the technology committee is 100% composed of people who are in favor and then you have a majority of the uh, Engagement committee who are bound to be in favor and, what kind of a process is that when it then goes to consultation and when they're allowed to use evidence that many of them it's been manufactured within this what i've called a concert party so a concert party a series of apparently autonomous entities who are actually working to the same agenda and you know you can criticize the bank of england when they quote as evidence Papers given out by, for example, the Bank for International Settlements. Well, the the Bank of England is a member of the Bank for International Settlements. Its people work on the Bank for International Settlements projects. So there's no way that anything that comes out of the Bank for International Settlements can be presented as independent. But the Bank of England does so. So it's a tainted and biased and very partial selection of evidence to prove the case.
0: And you're worried that some of the people on the these committees, especially the technology committee, may have a financial interest in promoting. Oh, I'm not
1: worried. It's, uh, yeah. it's absolutely obvious that they yeah. do,
0: but and, and it may not be f- completely disclosed, or they may be through their through you know various uh, well entities it needs they're involved. Be in. Searched because
1: yeah. I only yeah. took it to the first level, but you very quickly behind behind it, you come into the same milieu, the same group of. Institutions, organisations, and people, as sit behind FTX, BlockFi, you know, whatever disaster you need, to, you can uh, uh, point to in the crypto world. There are overlaps between those organisations, the organisations sitting behind them, and it, it obviously is a highly extensive concert party. And if we, the UK's businesses and, and private people, are going to be delivered into this thing, CN, uh, Central Bank Digital Currency, well, surely we want to know who all these people are and how they connect t- together with one another. And that should be a very, very big project. And that should happen before the Bank of England's allowed to push for- through with this. But of well, course...
0: it what response have you had to your paper, you know, whether from legislators, regulators, other people in the industry? Well, I got or, what several
1: group. supportive messages from people from the House of Lords. The House of Lords Economic Committee published a, a um, critical study of Bitcoin. Um, and that was just arrogantly brushed aside by the Bank of England, i.e. you don't know what you're talking about. Similarly to the way the Bank of England brushed aside... Uh, the House of Lords critique of quantitative easing and low interest rates. Um, Other than that, I mean, I think when it goes to members of parliament, I think there's a mixture of, they may sit in the seats that say you're on the committee for economic this and treasury that, but I actually don't think they know very much about it. And the other thing is, it is government policy. It's coming right from the top. You know, Rishi Sunak went to Stanford University. That's where he met his wife. He thinks Silicon Valley, crypto, f- fintech. He thinks future. the future. Our, the future. Yeah. But the point is, what do we think? What do the rest of us think? It's already very well for him to be propelled up to be prime minister and say, this is the future. And we've all got to learn maths so we can, you know, do crypto. But what do we want? I mean it is actually about democracy as much as anything else. What do we want? When did we say we wanted to lose checks, physical cash? You no, know, that's it's our country, our currency as much as theirs. But we this bypassing of democratic process by lobby groups, trade groups, moneyed interests and so on. This seems to be the hallmark of how things are done and bitcoin is the epitome of that.
0: Yeah, although it's, I mean, if just as a an outside observer, it, if to me it seems unlikely that the, the train is going to leave the tracks without uh, some kind of dramatic rethink of it. They're, they're, they're looking at, the politicians are looking at other countries, they're looking at China's incoming CBDC. It doesn't look as yeah. if they're about to give it up.
1: Well, no, but then if they looked at Nigeria, they'd see that the take-up of the CBDC has been minuscule. And the government there is having to introduce all kinds of measures to attack cash head on in order to make their CBCC take off. If they were to look at El Salvador and how Bitcoin has not taken off there as legal tender. But it depends what you look at. And if you look, you know, at any point you you can see an example of it. Oh, it's kicking off there. If you just select that as your evidence, as opposed to all the other places, it isn't kicking off. You can put together a supportive picture. And the people, the approval process for this, well, ultimately, it is the Bank of England. That's it. They've become so independent that there's effectively no parliamentary control anymore. And they can put together evidence. They can ignore Hong Kong and Sweden. I mean, Sweden said, one of their studies said, this thing can't give change. So the technology is so slow that you're waiting half an hour to get change for the tokens you've got on your card for, and the merchant. It's ridiculous. You'd be standing there half an hour. Oh, mm. no, that, that doesn't get a hearing. It's only the supportive evidence, often manufactured within the same concert party that is uh, has taken note of
0: let's talk a bit more about the vulnerabilities in the in the you know the the way the system is currently how it's how it's evolved um you've talked about authorized push payment fraud and that's that's a big problem in itself what about the question of safeguarding so you if you yes. if you have funds at a bank in the uk you're protected by deposit insurance government yes. providing deposit that's insurance right. up to I forget what the, the limit 70, is. 85000
1: 85, per account holder. So a joint account, yeah. that can have 170000 So if a bank goes bust,
0: like, you get your money back from the government within a yes. fairly short period of time. Now, if you have your money at an electronic money institution, there's no such thing. It's not a bank. So you don't get no. deposit insurance. But there is this concept of safeguarding that they're, they're supposed to put customer funds to one side, not mix the customer funds with their own money. And so if they go bust, yes. you know the customer's funds should be protected. Is it protected?
1: Well, firstly, there's this case of IPAGU, It's a large e-money institution, um, which when it went under, the FCA basically put it out of business. It went under, but now it looks as if several other types of creditor can access the client funds and the safeguarding that was put in place is not watertight because safeguarding should mean every euro or pound of e-money issue is backed by either a bank deposit or government securities high quality liquid assets or some form of insurance policy And whatever money comes back out of any of those three places is entirely and only attributable to the e-money holders. But there's been a court case where actually the, the FCA are trying to find out if that's true. Now, I mean, just consider that for a minute. We've had these kind of institutions for well over a decade, and now the regulator has joined a legal action to find out whether the concept of safeguarding holds true in the actual liquidation of one of these institutions.
0: Now that if that isn't So that's enough, pretty then, scary if they if the regulator doesn't know.
1: Yeah. And they should have known before they issued any license. Absolutely rock solid how this would going to work in an actual case of a liquidation. So if that isn't bad enough then you have the, the bank deposit option, so three options, the insurance policy, very clunky, not sure how many people are using it, high quality liquid assets, not very much used. The primary mechanism is to place the money in a bank deposit. But, you know, I'm no great fan of the EU, but before Brexit, the... Limitation was the bank had to be a licensed bank in a European economic area member state. Now it can be a licensed bank anywhere. Well, you know, does that tell you it's good quality? Nothing about public credit rating. Um, You know, you've also had the contributory problem of the payment system regulator and FCA not making sure that these firms can get bank accounts in the UK. So actually, the funds, are, in my understanding, and I've been involved, are mainly being deposited in places like Malta, Cyprus, and the Baltic states. Well, really, I mean, you know, is that these, good are, these
0: are small countries with with probably inadequate deposit insurance schemes of their own? They would not be able to cope with the failure of a big EMI. And, and well,
1: no, but then the, they're not even the, the funds are ineligible. For even for deposit insurance coverage there. Right. The bigger question is financial probity. But there's a lot of mis- misunderstanding. If you look at when you open a bank account and you get a... Uh, how does the financial services compensation scheme cover you? There's a list of types of customer who are not covered by the scheme, and one of them is financial institutions. Hmm. So the deposit of an EMI with a bank anywhere is never covered by the local deposit insurance scheme because the depositor is an ineligible party. Now, the other misconception is that that deposit bank in some way keeps the money apart and doesn't use it as part of its normal funding. Well, that's an illusion. Also, the only Measures to keep the money apart supposedly are the ones that seem to have come into question with Ipagu. They're supposed to keep the money away from other creditors of the EMI or payment institution, if it, whichever. But there's nothing about making sure the money is kept away from the other creditors of the deposit bank. And you know, you've got banks in Cyprus. Perhaps it's got a little better now. But a couple of years ago, 40 plus percent of all the loans that the banks of Cyprus had made were on non-performing status. In other words, they didn't exist. So if a bank has about seven or eight percent of capital compared to its balance sheet, you're talking about money being in a bank which has a massive black hole in it. And it's only being kept alive by the indulgence of the local regulators. If it went under, the EMIs would take a haircut. They'd take a 30-40% haircut.
0: Yeah, I, I just best, wanted to add, add to the conversation that uh, um, I published an article early last year citing a Transparency International report that up to half of the UK EMIs it surveyed raised some kind of money laundering red flag. So they either had people as... You know, directors or owners of the EMIs that had a criminal past, or they were involved <laughs> in some dodgy business of, you know, and that that you know, that 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 that's only a you know a threatening letter from the law firm representing one of the EMIs. Yeah. I'd mentioned the article that I'd taken from the Transparency International report. So it's a that's a sensitive uh, topic, and and it sounds like we we're, we're only going to find out what the real risks are in this sector when when something fails, something bigger fails. That's right.
1: And that's poor, isn't it? When we have a payment systems regulator and a financial conduct authority, and the problems are known, that we have to wait for a disaster like Ipagu to find out how badly the uh, users, end users, were protected. It's very poor.
0: And I'm afraid to say that most of us don't do a very good job distinguishing between Banks, what we call challenger banks, neo banks. Mm. Well, some of these EMIs are not banks, but we routinely label them as banks in in the press yes. articles. Well, it's uh, not just know. we
1: that do that; yeah. they do it themselves. Yeah. I mean, there's one which um, has had got quite a bit of traction, and it on its website. I mean, this was a year or two ago. I'd need to check it again. Where the CEO said, "I wanted to create a bank for ordinary people." Yeah. Well. You haven't. But when they're allowed to say that, you know, the FCA should come down on like like a ton of bricks. It's a misleading statement. It makes out as if your company is a bank. And it isn't. It was an EMI. Um, yeah. And it was one which was tied up with Wirecard. Now, actually, the EMI industry got off fairly lightly from Wirecard, you know, the that fraud and disaster. Um but that should have been a warning shot but the fca and psr have made sure that the, the the firms they keep the client funds apart from their own funds they've done something keep the funds apart make sure you report what the client funds are regularly and reconcile that with what your safeguarding uh, account says fine but they haven't done anything about the safety of safeguarding. The points I mentioned a few minutes ago: which yeah. banks they're in, are those banks credible? What about the probity of the people involved? Um, they've done nothing about that. And then you have the, the legal problem illustrated by Ipagoo. As does this whole safeguarding thing work anyway in English law? Mm.
0: Now, just to conclude, uh, Bob, thank you for a very you know fascinating discussion. Um, you, you've written that UK payments are in the hands, or they are the domain of a technocratic elite. Yes. What can the rest of us do to fight back?
1: Well, one thing you can do is use cash. Make sure you're getting money out of an ATM and using it, and not feeding them with their their um, their. Uh, um, deductions from face value, I'd also say, go and shop in the high street. It's funny that due to the Royal Mail strike and the postal strike and whatever other strikes, uh, train strikes, this Christmas, we hardly bought anything online. We went into towns, into the high street and bought everything face to face. And uh, okay, we use cars, but we also use cash use cash, go in and shop face-to-face. That's the major thing that people can do.
0: Bob, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating chat and I look forward to following your work in 2023. Thanks very much, Paul. Bye bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website newmoneyreview.com you can also sign up to our newsletter which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally please join us soon for our next episode.